a lot of folks didn't enjoy wearing that uncomfortable body armor to protect your perineum and external genitalia. And so you would find that, you know, that was one place that was fairly vulnerable to getting injured. And that was one of the things that, that military urology really could make a difference. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. Today we are joined with Colonel Doug Soderdahl, a urologist and career military physician. Colonel Soderdahl, first of all, congratulations on your upcoming 30-year retirement. Thanks, Wayne. Let's start by asking a few questions to set the stage for our listeners. What does a urologist do and why do we have them in the military? It's really similar to a urologist in the civilian community. Uh, We take care of the genital urinary tract and the kidneys all the way to the external genitalia and treat conditions such as cancer, stones, infertility, erectile dysfunction, and voiding problems. The reason we have uniform urologists is that we provide specialty care role three facilities. So that's the the cash and the field hospital. And in that area, we act as urologists, but also act as general surgery extenders. One of the things we see downrange is a lot of pelvic and retroperitoneal injuries and some external genitalia trauma. And then we also see some common conditions that are seen in the younger population, uh, like stones, ball pain, and even cancer. Did have the opportunity to diagnose a couple, uh, one young soldier and one young airman with testicular cancer. You know, it's kind of interesting that uh, the dictum in urology used to be, don't ever let the sun set on a testicular tumor. But with our ability to get people evacuated and advances in chemotherapy, we were able to get them out. And I just didn't want to do an orchiectomy for cancer downrange and then you know, run into problems with the pathology. So Colonel Soderdahl, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from and how you ended up becoming an Army urologist? Sure. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's kind of a funny story in that my dad's actually an Army urologist. And, you know, that was kind of the last thing I wanted to be. But he was stationed at Tripler. I grew up in Hawaii. You know, he was there for a while. So I went through elementary school all the way through high school. And he ultimately got out and went to private practice. Fun fact, I actually went to high school, Barack Obama. Really? Did you, did you know him? Uh, you know, I didn't really know him. We were, we were on campus at the same time, but he was several years ahead of me. You know, when I was growing up, I, I really wanted to be a military pilot. And behind that was I had a bunch of friends or our family friends that actually were military aviators. And they had some just great stories about how cool it was to fly in the military. In fact, a couple of guys um, were actually involved in Operation Eagle Claw. That, that sounds familiar. Is that something to do with the Iran hostage crisis? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was early 80s. And, uh, you know, it was a, a failed mission, unfortunately, with the Delta unit and uh, a helicopter crash. And, and several people died, unfortunately. But, yeah, it still just kind of instilled that sense of adventure in me. And so that, that's what I, I kind of wanted to do. Uh, at the beginning. So is this what steered you into medicine during that disaster? Actually, it it wasn't. I still was kind of uh, excited about an interesting career in aviation that I actually went and took an ROTC scholarship and went to Wheaton College with the intent on, you know, going into Army aviation. And after advanced camp my junior year, I branched into aviation. Had to make a decision. I was a biology major. Um, and actually, I kind of enjoyed it and felt I was pretty good at it. I took the MCAT and did pretty well. So um, ultimately, wound up getting an HBSB scholarship and going to Northwestern. And so, you know, the rest is history as far as 
aviation versus medical corps. Yeah, so how does someone who wants to be a pilot then decide what they want to do as far as their specialty, in your case, going into urology? Well, again, going into urology was kind of the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to you know, follow in dad's footsteps and do exactly what he did. But in medical school, I found that it was really easy to rule things out. I did a bunch of rotations, said, yeah, I don't want to do that. No, don't want to do that. But I found that I was really interested in uh, orthopedic surgery and urology. And it was between those two. I don't know if it was hereditary or I didn't understand what my dad really did, but I found myself being attracted to urology. It's a pretty good lifestyle. Patients are generally pretty happy when you can get them to pee and help them get an erection, stop leaking urine, remove kidney stones. Overall, it's a pretty uh, happy patient population. So that's what drew me in. Are there opportunities today to train in urology in the military? There actually are, and all of the services have some training opportunities. The Army has four training opportunities, one place at Tripler in Hawaii, one at Madigan in the Seattle-Tacoma area, one at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, and the other one at Walter Reed. The Navy has two, one in San Diego and one in Portsmouth, and uh, the Air Force also trains a urologist here in San Antonio. When I, when I did it, I trained at Madigan. The format was due two years of general surgery and then three years of urology. So when you first got your orders to go to your first duty location, what was it and what was it like? Well, back in the, the ice ages when I trained, there was a, an expectation that after your internship in very competitive specialties like urology and surgery and orthopedics, you would become general medical officer um, and then come back and complete your training. So my first assignment out of internship was uh, going to Korea where I was put in charge as a commander of a, a medical detachment. We had about, it was in the middle of, middle of Korea, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. We had about 3,000 patients and about 40 people, including one doc, one nurse, a PA, some medics, as well as Katusas, which are the Korean augmentees to the United States Army. So all of the Korean males have to join the military most intelligent and high-performing folks come and join the American military. So it was quite a transition from going from internship where, you know, I was the scut boy to now having command responsibilities and having to know about UCMJ and Article 15s and the unit status report. Uh, so it's a big learning curve. I think that's good for people to know that there is that pathway for even people who are undecided or don't know exactly what specialty they want to go into, that the Army does have another way in which people can support the Army and be a military physician just as you were, and then ultimately decide what they'd like to do. Well, I, I can tell you that, I mean, it was a fat, you know, fantastic uh, experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, the only hard part for me was being separated from my wife for a year. She was able to come out and visit, but I really learned a lot about the military. And uh, it was a great experience. I almost wish that everyone could have that kind of experience early in their training because it really gives you perspective of what the Army does. So, you know, quick story. When I first arrived, you know, I kind of wanted to make sure that my unit knew that I was the guy in charge and I was going to be fearless and intimidating. So the first sergeant and I went and got my command photo and I took it and put it up on the clinic. A day later, the first sergeant comes back to me and says, hey, you're going to have to retake that photo. And I said, why? It looks pretty, uh, pretty intimidating and kind of scary. He's like, yeah, that's, that's just not really you. I said, I kind of like it. He goes, well, also, you've got your, your two ribbons on backwards. And so I was like, 
uh, yeah, probably should retake that. I knew he was trying to tell me in a nice way that I think he was going to sneak in and fix my rivets for me to get it retaken. So anyway, I decided to go in and smile and it all turned out to be okay. So let's fast forward. So you, you started your career kind of in a mini deployment to Korea. Can you talk about your first combat deployment and when that was? Yeah, so uh, I had finished my residency at Madigan and uh, went to Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia. Was staffed there for a while. I was a uh, program director for the transitional year. And then I went and did a fellowship. And then after my fellowship, I came back to Brook Army Medical Center. And I'd been there for probably a couple of months and found out that I was going to be deployed to Iraq, to Mosul, with a reserve unit in 2005. And that unit had was going to be there for a total of about 13 months. And I was going to join them as a replacement in the second half. And so I came with a couple other docs in the mid-cycle with uh, some general surgeons, orthopods, uh, me and a GYN surgeon. And we also had a, an endocrinologist who, who wound up running the ICU and some ER docs running uh, the ER and clinic. Uh, but I can tell you that first deployment, we were absolutely incredible, incredibly busy. And I'm sure most people remember all the stories about Fallujah in 2004. And one of the things is when I was watching that happen, I knew it was going to deploy in 2005. You know, I was like, well, hey, I'm going to be north. It's going to be quiet. It's not going to be too bad. But then we went and, you know, basically said, hey, we're going to destroy Fallujah. So if you don't get out of here, you're going to get destroyed. So where do they all go? Well, a lot of them went up north to a place called Talifar, which was right down the street from Mosul. So we saw lots of trauma, uh, lots of general and orthopedic surgery. What would you say is your most memorable deployment story? Oh, boy, that's a, a great question. You know, there's so many things that are memorable from that deployment. One of the funny things I remember was how I didn't really start off on a, a good foot. We had gone through our CRC training and went through Kuwait with our little crew of replacements. And I knew that the folks at the, the cash were going to be excited to see us come and kind of replace the folks that were going to be leaving. So we got there probably about one o'clock in the morning. And I was tired, it was a long trip, and, but I was kind of excited to see him. And so going into the cache, I realized that you know, they were all in there waiting to meet the new surgeons. And one of the things that for those who've been deployed, you know you gotta clear your weapon before you go into any place. And so in clearing my Beretta, I managed to get a Beretta bite on the web between my thumb and, and forefinger and, uh, or my, my pointer finger. And you know, little did I know that there's a, a, a little known direct branch from the aorta that kind of courses right under that skin. And so I've got a pulsating bleed in my right hand. And as I walk into this you know, new hospital to meet the team, I'm like, hey, I'm your new surgeon and I'm already bleeding. So uh, I'll never forget that as my first meeting with the, the new guys. What other kinds of stuff did you do? Obviously, I took care of you know, any of the urology trauma, but a lot of it was really assisting in what needed to be done. And, and one of my primary duties was a uh, triage officer. And that was something I never had really prepared for. I'd all got, you know, we'd all trained with mass cows and, and kind of had the, the theory in mind. But when it really happens, it's a different story. Um, you know, we had two, two OR tables that we would generally use that could be expanded to four if we needed it. 
But we would often get some mass cal situations where we would receive 50 plus patients over the a time period of about an hour. They would come in through the flight line by the, the helicopters, come in through the, the striker ambulances. And you know, one of those things as a urologist who just finished fellowship training in endourology and minimally invasive surgery, here I am now that the person has to make the decision is, is this person delayed, intermediate, minimal, or expectant? And that was, that was rough. I'll never forget that. And one of the things that I always remember is that sometimes after maybe 24, 36 hours of a major mass cal, we'd wind up getting through all of the delayed and minimal and um, immediate. And we'd go back to the expectant area and, and actually a few of those folks um, wound up surviving. And, and so having to make that decision that someone's expectant and then having them live was cool, obviously, but you know, having to make that decision and, and having them expire just because we didn't have enough resources, um, that was tough. I think that's one of the things that is interesting to consider because some people out there may find themselves being the triage officer for a mass cal. And, and we're all used to training where we've had CT scanners or we've got x-rays or even a fast exam. But correct me if I'm wrong, but you were triaging these patients right off a helicopter, correct? Yeah. It's, I mean, they had just uh, you know, unloaded them. And obviously the, the medics would give you as much information as they could about what injuries they kind of thought that they had and what their vital signs were. But trying to do a good physical exam on the flight line in the noise and the wind of the helicopters, it was, it was not easy. And so you had to make a decision of, I've got four OR beds. Does this guy get one or, or not? And so that, that's something that, that folks need to think about when they get in a situation where the demand you know, greatly ex ex exceeds the supply of resources. I think you pointed out a very important point about triage too, that it's it's a single point in time, but you also get by waiting longer periods of time, different data points, just like you might in a hospital setting where you examine a patient four hours later to see how they're doing. And so you demonstrated the re-triage principle that even though they were triaged to one category, that later on, it's worth going back and getting a second data point to make sure that they've been triaged properly. Yeah, ab absolutely. And you know, I think everybody realizes that the, the, the triage officer is not 100% perfect. And so having that residual system to reevaluate is, is critical in making a mass cow work. Now, when you move from the, the triage line to the operating room, do you have any memorable cases or great saves? Oh boy, we had a lot of really uh, incredible saves and it was just kind of partnering with the general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons um, because they, they, they really had the, the, you know, the brunt of the trauma with IEDs and fractures and gunshot wounds. But one, one in particular, I remember it didn't come in um, with a mass cow. It was, it was one patient that came in who had been shot in the pelvis with a, a low velocity weapon and, and wound up figuring out that he'd been shot right through the prostate. And so, you know, they said, hey, who, who deals with the prostate? And of course, hey, that's you. And so I got a chance to operate on this guy. And it was amazing to me that that was really his only significant injury. He didn't have a rectal injury. You know, there, there was significant bleeding, but I was able to do, you know, a, an operation that looked a lot like a radical retributive prostatectomy that I would do for cancer on this 
probably 40-ish individual. It really went well once once the bleeding was controlled. You know, we used to joke in training that you could walk into a urology operation of a radical retributive prostatectomy, and you really probably couldn't tell the difference between someone who'd been shot in the pelvis or just a normal radical retributive prostatectomy, because we would often have to use multiple units of blood and pretty significant blood loss. You know, clearly that's changed with the event of minimally invasive surgery and robotic assist. What would be the long-term outcome of an enemy combatant who wasn't able to have somebody who could reconstruct their prostate and their urethra? Well, you know, I think that if if I wasn't there, most likely the, the damage control principles would be find a way to divert the urine through a superpubic tube and, and tie off the bladder or, you know, some kind of drainage of the ureters or kidneys or even bringing the ureters to the skin. And unfortunately, because he was an enemy combatant, I didn't get the benefit of knowing what happened long-term. So I don't know if he was continent. I don't know about erections, but I do know that he went through the, the operation very well, didn't have any infections, no leakage, minimal draining, no evidence of any kind of bowel injury. So short-term, it went fine. Long-term, I just don't know. Did you have a good enough lighting to be able to sew in the pelvis like that in, the, in a combat hospital? That seems like a, a tough case. Yeah, I mean, we, we did have headlights, but it, it, is, it is somewhat more austere uh, environment than used to. And clearly, when, when you see, if you, if you go into a robotic prostatectomy, the lighting is just fantastic. You see, you know, 10-time magnification of all the anatomy. And, you know, in the case of trauma, you kind of have to know that stuff by feel because a lot of times you're not going to see it and you're going to have a lot more blood loss. And so just having those reps of, of being comfortable operating in the pelvis, knowing the anatomy of the prostate and the external sphincter, bladder, neck, I think was very helpful. Well, it sounds like your urology skills really paid off here. Any other memorable cases? Yeah, you know, we had so many. We, we, we had a lot of burns. And, and one of the things, you know, I know a lot of listeners will likely have worked in a burn unit. It's always super, super hot because they can't you know, control their body temperature. So we would have to, you know, for burn patients, we would do the escharotomies and, and, and grafting. But we built these kind of makeshift uh, burn units out of cardboard boxes and uh, it was amazing that we could keep them warm and, and actually, you know, some incredible saves of some burns that I thought there was no way in the world, um, you know, in the middle of Iraq that we'd be if these people evacuated and saved. Another thing that I got to be good at, and I didn't expect to be good at as a, a urologist was I was kind of known as the wound back Jedi. I could totally link multiple links of different wound backs all over the body. And when we turned on the suction, they'd all go down like, oh, nice job. So I thought that was kind of funny as a urologist. I also got pretty good at, at putting on uh, X fixes because a lot of times we'd be overwhelmed the ortho orth orthopedic surgeons. And uh, you know, so I'd be at one table, they'd be doing something way more complex. And I'd look over at them and say, like, what do you think? Like, no, that's kind of not, that's a little crooked. And so, you know, but you know, got the hang of it. And, you know, you really do the things that you, you have to do to save people. Um, and that's something that you don't expect, you know, when you're in your normal training. Um, but I had supervision. They were right there if I needed them. I got a chance to really look at the principles of doing some of those 
things that a urologist doesn't necessarily do. And ultimately, I think the, the outcomes are pretty good. I think that would be the art of medicine that a lot of people may not know goes on, being able to link 10 different wound backs together so that they all can function properly. So what lasting images come to your mind when you think about deployment and maybe some amusing stories that you have? Yeah, I, mean, I think this, this classic images that I'll never forget is, you know, we often really didn't have time to change into OR shoes or sneakers. We just come straight from wherever we were in our uniform and, and you know, didn't put on boot covers or shoe covers. And so you'd wind up with just the boots were completely bloody. And just that's that picture of bloody boots sitting out on my outside of my shoe. And we would rub rub dirt in it. Somehow the dirt would get the blood out, but not do a great job. But those bloody boots are something that I always remember. Another thing that I, I'll never forget is deployed with the Air Force Hospital in Iraq too. I was in Balad and they have from the flight line into the ER triage area, that gigantic um, American flag. And so many people that passed underneath that flag, you know, that was the point where they knew that they were gonna be okay. They knew that they were in good hands, that America was here with the best medical care that we could provide. And the last image, and we were right next to a special forces uh, compound and you know, they would come and, and work out in the gym there. And we'd have all kinds of exotic sniper rifles and cool automatic weapons. And so you'd be waiting for the bench and you'd have this sniper rifle in your M16 or M9. It just was a little bit surreal. What about any amusing stories? Oh, you know, comes to mind is after a really long um, particularly rough Mascal for many hours. Um, we, we wound up <clears throat> having a deal where, you know, some of the folks in our unit would go on an R and R and they would get to leave the country, you know, stay in the middle East, but you know, they would go and come back. And what they found was that sometimes it took a while to get them back. And so they said, well, you know, we can't let the physicians, we can't let the surgeons, you know, go to Cutter or wherever on R and R, and so we were kind of bummed that everyone else got a chance to go, but you know, we didn't, we couldn't, and so they came up with this deal where we were going to let a couple folks go to a place in northeast Iraq where there was one of Saddam's hotel or you know one of his palaces that was really nice. Go for a couple days and just kind of you know decompress a little bit and then come back. And so to get there, you know, we flew on a, a medevac helicopter. And so I'm completely tired. I'm with my battle buddy, Russ. We just finished this Mascal. We get on this helicopter and the, the crew of the helicopter, I'm like, what in the world are they doing? They've got these plastic bags that are filled with candy that are tied to little parachutes. And I'm like, what, what are we going to do? And so, you know, we start flying over the city of Mosul and they, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, the you know the kids know when we're coming, and so you know they have these big bags of candy that they would you know the kids would run out and they would drop the bags of candy, and I guess it was winning hearts and minds, and I thought that was great, but I was super tired, so you know I saw that okay, okay I'm going to sleep. I don't know how long it was later, but I'll tell you what, um, all of a sudden automatic gunfires going on inside the cabin. There's shells going everywhere. 
And, you know, both Russ and I wake up and there's, you know, out both sides, there are people firing automatic weapons outside. And, you know, I'm like, this is it. I'm, you know, we're going down. And then as soon as it started, it stopped and no one said anything. And it just kind of went back to business. And when we landed at the place, we're like, what the heck was that? Like, well, you know, we, we have to train uh, with by firing certain you know live ammunition from the aircraft every so often. So we usually wait till um, we got some VIPs on the uh, on the flight and when we do our training. So uh, that that's what happened. And I had a, a good idea why the clothing and sales sell brown underwear after that. This <laughs> is cruel. Um... So by the time this podcast is released, I'll be well into my first deployment. Any tips for those about to deploy? You know, the, the best thing you can do is contact those who you're replacing and, and just get as much information about what is going to be the expectations and requirements. And then once you find that out, get as much practice as you can. You know, try and do as many cases and get as much training in those areas you know, right now, the, the JTS, the Joint Trauma System, has some really nice um, clinical practice guidelines um, and other literature that, that reviews, you know, a lot of good trauma principles. And I'd recommend tapping into and becoming aware of, you know, the, the global kind of teleconsult program. It, it's amazing how much help and information, you know, you feel like you're isolated in the middle of nowhere. But if you do have some combo and internet connection, there are a bunch of people who are willing and ready and able to help you out in, in whatever you need to do. Yeah, you've certainly had some unique experiences uh, with your military career. What would you say is the most unique aspect of military medicine, uh, being a urologist compared to being a civilian urologist? Yeah, I would say just being in some austere environments and having the expectation that your scope of practice is expanded um, beyond what you normally would do. As a military urologist, I've had so many unique opportunities that I don't think I ever would have gotten if I was a civilian urologist. I mean, I think back to that first command in Korea, I volunteered to be the, the camp doctor at the U.S. Army Australian Repelling Course in Jeju-do, Korea, and got to do Australian repelling you know, down these cliff faces. And that was you know, part of my military urology career. Um, also, as a urologist, there's some great training opportunities to go on many uh, medical readiness exercises. Uh, I've been down to Tegucigalpa and Honduras you know, probably five or six times on missions, um, gone to Ghana, Africa, and really had an opportunity to do some, you know, really good cases without the, the normal support and equipment and the things that you're used to in the United States and you're still providing great care, but you have to kind of do it with a, you know, knife spoon and fork rather than your nice fluoroscopy units and, you know, your huge number of sets for every case that you do. What is the role of a urologist when deployed on the battlefield to support military units? Yeah, it really depends on the role um, of where you're assigned, you know, as a, at a role two. So, uh, you know, a forward resuscitation surgical detachment, you know, you're going to be, uh, you know, kind of a general surgery extender. Um, but most of the time, urologists go to a role three, so a combat surgical hospital, field hospital level, um, you know, where you have a little bit more support. And, and it really depends on, you know, what's going on in the theater. In Iraq, in 2005, we had air superiority, but it was still pretty early. Um, you know, so, you know, we didn't have all the equipment that you'd expect 
um, you know, for a normal practicing urologist. So I was able to do rudimentary things for people who came in with kidney stones, like maybe put in a stent. But most of the time, those folks got, you know, evacuated out of theater just because we couldn't take care of it. When I came back with the Air Force in Balad in 2010, it was a much more mature theater. And, you know, I had, you know, really fantastic endoscopic equipment. I had ureteroscopes, uh, had wires, I had stents, I had a a urology technician who knew what she was doing. You know, I actually probably had a better setup there than I did, you know, back where I was practicing in the States. And so, you know, I I was able to you know, have about a 95% return to duty rate for folks who came in with kidney stones. You know, they would just come in and I was able to treat them, take the stone out, put a stent in, watch them, take the stent out, and they get back to duty. And, you know, one of the things that we found out was, you know, anybody that got evacuated out of the theater for anything, it was just hard to get them back, even if after they were taken care of. So if you could keep them in theater and get them back to the you know, fighting strength, that was a huge, you know, exponential combat multiplier. And so I felt like, you know, even though I wasn't doing as much trauma in general surgery, I was busy as a urologist. I was the only urologist in the country. And you know, because it's so hot and people aren't drinking that much, um, Lots of stones. Yeah. And so you were at an Air Force base. How was it working with the Air Force? They're awesome team members. And really, once you're in the OR, once you're working on a medical team, it was just seamless. You know, I learned a lot about the Air Force heraldry and customs. And you know, I got to be a big appreciator of the evacuation system. You know, it was amazing to me that it was easier sometimes for me to coordinate patients coming in for surgery in the middle of Iraq with all of the airframes and evacuation systems they have, you know, than I have in San Antonio trying to get a patient on for the OR. Funny story though about the Air Force is that, you know, they really do like to take care of their folks. And so we did have a Cinnabon on the, uh, on the base. And, and I think there was really a day of mourning when that closed down. You know, I think people just, just wasn't the same. They were wearing black and kind of long faces. But, but really, just when, you know, you thought that, you know, hey, this is, I'm in a pretty well-equipped hospital, it's pretty normal, you know, then the sirens would go off and you'd have to jump in the nearest bunker and, you know, Balad was a, a place known for mortars and rockets. And, you know, one of the things that I'll never forget the sound of a CRAM, counter-rocket artillery and mortar system, and that thing fires 4,500 20-millimeter, which are twice as big as a 50-cal bullet, uh, 4,500 rounds per minute. Um, and, you know, as I went as an 06 in that 2010 uh, deployment, so I had my own, you know, pretty nice accommodations, but I think the joke was on me because they set my uh, my little place where I stayed. It was right next to one of those C-Rams. And when that thing went off, man, it worked better than any alarm or beeper. And, you know, again, my brown underwear came to the rescue. What do you think is one misconception people may have about your military medical specialty? Yeah, I think a lot of people think that urology is just for old folks with big prostates and bladder cancer and, and old ladies that leak urine. But, you know, there's a lot of conditions that are found in the younger active duty population. We see stones, incontinence, infertility, um, and even post-war urology complications from IED injuries. A lot of folks didn't enjoy wearing that uncomfortable body armor to protect your perineum and external genitalia. And so you would find that 
you know, that was one place that was fairly vulnerable to getting injured. And, and that was one of the things that, that military urology really could make a difference. What was your most interesting assignment? You know, that's hard to say. You know, they all were interesting in their own ways. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, being a part of GME. I got to be the program director for the transitional internship. Um, when I was in Georgia, I had a chance to train in advanced endourology and minimally invasive surgery at a civilian center, and that was paid for by the Army. You know, got to be the consultant to the Surgeon General for issues related to urology, got to be the d- deputy commander of, you know, the Army's only level one trauma center in San Antonio, Brook Army Medical Center, and, and even my current job, which is is working for the chief of the medical corps, you know, really looking at strategies um, for, you know, what are we going to do to support the future battlefield, um, perhaps against the near peer, you know, on a much larger scale than, than the recent conflicts. What would you say is one thing about military medicine that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I'd say that making sure our military doctors have the knowledge and skills to perform what's really needed in that austere environment. You know, when I trained, I had two years of general surgery followed by urology residence, and I had practice with a lot of open surgery um, that had a major potential for blood loss. And, and now I look at, you know, the residency program today, and we graduate residents that really have never done an open prostate surgery. They're very skilled at, you know, endourology and robotic-assisted surgery, um, but the problem is we don't have those robotic surgery capabilities on the battlefield. Nowadays, we, we rely heavily on advanced imaging and technology to provide world-class care. And, you know, in the case of the robotic prostatectomy, the surgeon sitting there in a console, you know, not even, you know, five feet from the patient, unmasked, ungloved, often just wearing socks. And, you know, the patient recovers faster, generally with a negligible blood loss. That's a whole different world from, you know, what is expected on the battlefield. And so finding a way to provide that care in peacetime, that's excellent with robots and endourology and advanced technology, but also having the skills when you're in an austere environment with all that stuff not readily available to be able to save and take care of patients that are injured. What can be done to make you sleep better at night? You know, I would say the secret sauce is finding ways to train and practice the skills that are needed on the battlefield. And for some specialties like trauma surgery, you know, their day job in a level one trauma center is very much similar to, you know, what they're going to see on the battlefield. Now, obviously, we don't have IEDs in America and a lot of high velocity weapons. But those skills are, are, are something that, you know, do relate. And that's really one of the reasons why we've been able to push the idea of having partnerships with the civilian world um, and having our military surgeons, anesthesiologists, you know, ER docs, ICU docs get into uh, a civilian level one trauma to get those skills. The problem is, is that there's specialties that, that don't have a major correlation between peacetime practice and battlefield requirements. And so we really need to find a way to get those individuals to get the training and some sets and reps and validated on the skills that they need. Yeah, and that leads exactly into the next question we had for you is how do we get those people that are at low volume uh, military treatment facilities the volume they need to, to be competent surgeons on the battlefield? I mean, that, that's the critical question. We first have to be able to understand the requirements and be able to you know, measure where we're at and be able to validate our proficiency. And, you know, when we find that there is a gap 
between their current skills and what's required, there's got to be innovative ways to get that training done. You know, I mentioned partnering with the civilians, you know, but ultimately there's a lot of possibilities in virtual reality simulation. Um, and, and this is really the type of training the military should be leading the way um, and developing those capabilities. You know, if you look at the pilots and flight simulators, you know, I think maybe 70 years ago, you could never convince a pilot that you could put them in a box and, and, and give them a, a more crazy experience that you could get from flying a real airplane. But, you know, those flight simulators really do a good job of testing the skills that are needed to do what's required. You know, if we could have those, you know, especially for those specialties who don't normally, you know, do the things that we're expecting them downrange. You know, we have a pediatric endocrinologist who now is going to have to do a chest tube or other ATLS procedures. You know, how do we make sure, you know, they have that familiarity and some of those skill sets? So you made it to 30 years of active duty service. Not many physicians can do that. What do you think is the best thing about being a military physician? Yeah, I think that's an easy question. It's without a doubt the people. Um, I never really would have expected that I'd be in for 30 years, but I've really been part of some awesome teams and worked with some incredible people and really taking care of the best patient population out there. I stay in touch with many military physicians that have exited the service at, at retirement or earlier than that, and almost 100% say that they really miss the camaraderie and teamwork that's just not present in the same way in the civilian healthcare system. Yeah, so Colonel Soderdahl, the, the first time I actually ever heard of you, uh, was when I requested to join your Facebook group that you created, the Army Medical Corps Facebook group. And so for people out there that don't know, this is a private group where military physicians post questions and assist each other with problems that we deal with, uh, you know, by being military physicians. And sometimes a few people even gripe on there. I found this group to be the best place to get questions answered as you have almost 2,000 Army docs that have gone through similar situations and generally give you instantaneous feedback, whether it's promotion boards or pay issues or whatever it may be. So what made you start this? Did you envision it becoming as big as it is now? And have you ever had to remove any posts? You know, I've always thought that one of the most important parts of mission success and leadership is good communication. And in a large system of bureaucracy like we have, it's really not that easy. And I know the military tried to mirror, mirror the, what's out there in the commercial sector, social media with things like Millbook and Millsuite, but it just never was quite as good and never really caught on. I, I myself was never a big social media guy. In fact, you know, despite administrating this Facebook group with 2,000 members, I still only have one Facebook friend. Yeah, I know, sad. It's, it's my wife, but, you know, I'm just not that social media guy. Um, but it has really been a, a great and positive experience. And, you know, I try to put some of the rules out there, you know, be respectable, be positive, respect HIPAA, you know, but there are some people who, you know, do, do sometimes bend the rules a little bit. And I have to say that I have had to remove some posts, unfortunately, but it, it, usually it's very, very rare. And the vast majority of the folks on the site really do get what it's there for. And, and it works out that way. So when someone's got a question or needs help, you know, usually within, you know, even 30 minutes, people come up with an offer for support or come up with the answer to the question. So that's been a big surprise. I didn't know what was going to happen, but, you know, I'm glad to hear some positive feedback. Yeah, honestly, it's like my favorite Army resource. So thank you for that. As we're wrapping up here, 
what do colonels that have been surgeons in the army for 30 years do when they uh, retire from the military? Well, a lot of people, you know, will continue in some kind of urology practice. And, you know, we've had many that go on to very successful academic careers, give you a list of prominent chairman positions at prestigious institutions, representative in urology and leadership position in national, international societies. Um, so there's a lot of things. Um, and some you know, go on other adventures and, you know, some even start podcasts. What are some significant contributions from urology to military medicine and medicine as a whole? Yeah, military urology really has made some significant breakthroughs in the area of trauma and reconstruction, as well as cancer research. You know, we, we brought attention to the distinct care needs of those with urological injuries from war. Just like PTSD, these are some of the unseen scars of war that are, are not obvious, like you know, amputations or, or burn scars, but they can be just as devastating. Um, and so, you know, developing awareness and novel treatments to restore sexual and urinary function post-injury and also assist with fertility concerns. I think military urology has been on the forefront there. And we also have some, you know, opportunities to do some federally sponsored cancer research. And we have a center for prostate disease research that have made numerous important contributions to the medical literature, both in, you know, prostate problems and prostate cancer. And, you know, military urology is known also for contributions to testicular cancer uh, treatment and research just because of the patient population that we see. This has certainly been a great interview and talking with you today. Not very often that you get to talk to someone who's been a career military physician for 30 years and probably 38 if you were to factor in your ROTC and medical school. Given all that time you've given to the Army, what is something that you will miss when you retire? Yeah, I would say just the, the camaraderie and, and feeling of that shared mission with the team. You know, when you're deployed, when you're in the trenches, you know, you really have that experience that you got each other back. I've had some great opportunities and experiences and I've met people I'll never forget. And hopefully we'll get to hear from some of those in a future podcast. So I really appreciate the, the time and opportunity to tell a little bit about my story, but also kind of prime the pump uh, for what, you know, can happen with a military medical podcast such as this. Lots of great people, lots of great stories, and I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word. <laughs>